0: And, and Matt has a very, out. very high pitched, irritating, sc- scratchy voice. Pat does? No, Matt does. Oh, sorry. Can we scratch all <laughs> of this? <laughs> this has
1: all just gotten edited out. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, oh, Pat.
0: Sorry, Matt. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am, wait for by it. Why, by why people drink kombucha. Oh, I have why, no idea. Why? What is that all about? Why what, don't you explain what kombucha is? I, I have no idea what it Some is. It's, fermented, may not know what it it's like is.
1: fermented green tea mixed with stuff. Right?
2: I don't. I. 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 I had it. Uh, I don't get it. I don't know why people think it's really wonderful. I'm just trying to understand, but I don't get it. No, anyway, mm. I am Matt Fox from what the a, Department what about of Apple academia. Cider Vinegar. That's fine. I'll drink that. That sounds people good. People actually
1: drink that? Yeah, my daughter's way into it now. She drinks it. Pour it into everything. a glass and you just she drink it, or it, it you with, cook water. with it. She mixes it with water and oh drinks it.
2: Oh, hang on! I thought you were kidding. No, so not. I'm not drinking that it's either. A thing. <laughs> really?
1: Yeah, she claims it, it cures everything. Everything? Pretty much. Wow. Except yeah, attitude, and, apparently. And
2: how does how does, how does her how does her doctor father feel about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Could yeah. be could be placebo uh, effect. I'm wondering.
2: Anyway, anyway, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. And I am here as always with Chris Gill and Don Thea. Hey Matt. Hello. From the Departments of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health as well. As always, we are here in the godly studio, except I'm not in the godly studio. I'm you in are, Berlin. You are, because
1: you're back from Berlin.
2: No, no, no. I'm in Berlin, which means somehow been I must here have been, for here. No, 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 have been ago, here. for a long time. I must have been here for what? Two and a half weeks? It I feel, feels you're like. Back. You're back now. No, no, I'm not. It's amazing. I've, I've just been here for weeks in this hotel. They won't let me out. <laughs>
0: What Have era. you tried turning the doorknob?
2: Do, do you think the, the audience finds this at all amusing no, that no, we do no. this all the time? It's, we're totally self-indulgent. I think we should, we should actually explain that we, we record two episodes at one time, and so we are constantly making jokes about Don't the fact the that secrets. it's two weeks later, when in fact it is a few minutes later. Time-shifting no- jokes. It's funny to us. It's not funny to you. Right. Anyway, as a, as a reminder... We would love it if you would head over to the Population Health Exchange website, which is BU's Hub for Lifelong Learning, where you can find all kinds of interesting public health stuff, I'm just going to say. But most importantly, well, I suppose that's important too, but most importantly, go over to uh, iTunes and Stitcher and wherever you get your podcasts and rate us, because I want to let you guys know, as of June 26th, since June 26th, we have two new reviews. Really? Yes. So I'm going to read them oh, to you. Wow. First one is from Keeping Sharp, who says, I have just been accepted. Oh, I no, it says Keeping Sharp is the title. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have just been accepted as a PhD student in a related field, but I already started listening to this podcast before I applied. Not only did it help me get thinking like an epidemiologist, but it really made me want to join their ranks. I even thought about applying to the Boston University. I got in somewhere else first, but I look forward to learning at a distance from these free associations, which I liked. Nice. So we're giving and it away then, free, is what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's and then the second model. one, the second one was titled Always a Good Time. And it says humor and knowledge, true epi insights distilled herein, drink some truth. So is that a haiku, Chris? I think it is. Drink humor some Humor and truth. knowledge, drink some truth. Yeah. Humor With and cum- knowledge, true epi insights yep. distilled herein, drink some truth. That's it. Yeah. Bravo. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study about a new drug to treat sickle cell disease. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about the first two registered reports that were published in Nature Human Behavior. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we are going to dig into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Don will tell us why we all look like our dogs. (laughs) Okay, so segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at a new drug to treat sickle cell disease, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That was titled, A Phase 3 Randomized Trials of, oh, help me, Voxelator. (laughs) Voxelator. A Phase 3 Trial of Voxelator in Sickle Cell Disease by first author... (laughs) Should I do that again? No, that's good. Keep going. Excellent. Excellent. You're totally fine with that? I pronounced it vaguely Uh, correctly? You
1: pronounced it exactly right, especially with the echo effect. Right. Good emphasis.
2: A a phase three randomized trial of voxelator in sickle cell disease by first author Elliot Vichinsky of UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. So here are some of the headlines for this one. New sickle cell drug improves hemoglobin characteristics, says MedPage Today. That's
0: pretty straightforward. That's that's, no- that's right on.
2: Yep. Novel drug could be disease-modifying well, in sickle cell disease. I mean, that's, that's true, but that's helpful. True. That's Medscape. And Voxelator improves hemoglobin levels in sickle cell disease.
1: Well, absolutely. Straightforward. Yeah, I love it. Three good questions. So three good that quotes. was
2: Physician's Briefing. Now, here's the thing about that, though. Listen to the three that I gave you. MedPage Today, Medscape, and Physician's Briefing. Why did I give you those three and not the New York Times? What did did Fox News say? Yeah, exactly. This study didn't get a lot of press. And I was pretty surprised by that, and I want to come back to this. Why didn't this study get more press? All right, so Don, before we get into why it didn't get more press, can you tell us what it was about and what what they found? Sure.
0: I think it's uh, sickle cell... Disease. I think most people are somewhat vaguely familiar with the, the whole concept, but but essentially it is a it's a it's an inborn error. It's a genetic abnormality where pe- people are born with one amino acid substitution in the hemoglobin gene, and so the hemoglobin that's produced is slightly different in these individuals, but different enough so that the many molecules of hemoglobin in a red blood cell tend to crystallize when there are states of r- uh, slightly lower um, oxygenation. And 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 what happens is that the red blood cells, which kind of look like a lozenge, collapse, and then they form a sickle. And those sickles result in all of the clinical manifestations, which can be very severe, very painful episodes, and they can produce end-organ damage. And it's a very, very serious disease, which actually results in, in hemolysis and anemia, vaso-occlusion uh, events, and reduces life expectancy by 30 years. Yeah. I didn't realize I that I that didn't is know huge. that. Absolutely deadly disease. That is that's just huge. And so there's about 100,000 people with sickle cell anemia in the United States. And and this molecule is sort of a first in its in its class. It's a molecule that attaches to that hemoglobin molecule and changes the conformation of that hemoglobin molecule just slightly enough so that it prevents this cascade of crystallization of the, of the hemoglobin molecules and prevents that lozenge-like cell from collapsing into a sickle. So it's, 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 a, it's a medicine that needs to be taken on a daily basis because it's metabolized and, and you need to make sure that you have a certain lo- amount of it in the blood to be able to affect these red blood cells and prevent them from deforming. So this is an industry sponsored phase 3 international multicenter placebo uh, RCT and I checked all of the authors and all the authors none of the authors are employed by the sponsor but they did say uh, and and they and they maintain that that the authors wrote the drafts but they did say that all drafts were prepared by authors with writing assistance from a medical writer funded by the sponsor we're you know, my yellow flag went up with that. Nonetheless, it seems like it's a you know it's a it's a, it's a it's a well done study. So the participants were 12 to 65 years of age with confirmed sickle cell disease. They had to have a hemoglobin that was sort of in the normal range. Well, it's not normal range, but it wasn't highly abnormal. So it was between 5.5 and 10.5 grams per deciliter. Uh, between one to ten vasoocclusive events in the past year. And they could be receiving the only alternative... Drug actually there are two, but it's the most common alternative drug called hydroxyurea, which is a which is a drug that has a similar effect but a completely different mechanism of action, and and is not really that effective. If the individual was transfusion dependent because their anemia was so bad that they required multiple transfusions, um, or they were hospitalized in the last sixty days for a specific crisis, they were excluded. So it's sort of it sort of tended to exclude people with more severe disease. And there were three groups. One was a high dose, which was 1,500 milligrams of voxelotor, and 900 m- uh, milligrams, which was the median group, and then a placebo group. There were three periods during the um, during the the trial. One was a screening period, which was consisted of the first month. Um, I think it was prior to taking the medication, and then there was a treatment period, which was 72 weeks, and then there was an end visit. Um, some period of time after the last dose. In the analysis, they stratified by um, hydroxyurea, yes or no, as well as the region of where the study was being done. And there there were multiple sites in North America, Europe, and a bunch of other sites. The endpoints were the percent of individuals with a hemoglobin response that was defined as an increase of one gram per deciliter from baseline to 24 weeks on treatment. And then they had secondary endpoints, which were essentially other biologic measures of improvement in the anemia. So it was the amount of indirect bilirubin, the amount of reticulocytes, and reticulocytes are red blood cells that can be stained in a special way to indicate that they're really young. They're new new red blood cells. The percent of reticulocytes and then LDH, which is a, a molecule that is elevated in the presence of hemolysis. So they, the uh, individuals were assessed clinically every two weeks for eight weeks, and then every four weeks through twenty four weeks, and then after that every three months. Um, they also took blood levels of the of the medication and looked at the percent of hemoglobin that was bound by the 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 drug, and that was important just to to correlate the fact that whatever they saw on the endpoint was in fact associated with a measurably uh, a measurable amount of the drug associated with the hemoglobin. The analysis was intention to treat. Um, And the comparison was baseline versus 24 weeks, as I mentioned. This study ran from January of 2017 to May 2018. And um, they screened about 500 individuals, and they came up with 274 participants across 60 institutions in 12 countries. There were 90 individuals in the high drug group, 92 in the medium drug group, and 92 in the placebo group. Table 1 indicated that there were some slight imbalances, um, the high drug group had more white individuals and there was more hemoglobin S disease in the placebo. And a sickle cell disease is not completely uniform because there are uh, a few other alterations in the hemoglobin that can result in the same disease, but it's not pure that pure um, one amino acid substitution that I mentioned before. So approximately two-thirds were um, taking hydroxyurea. The median follow-up was 42 weeks for the high group, 38 weeks for the medium group, and 37 weeks for the placebo group. And when they did the intention-to-treat analysis, there was a fairly marked response in the hemoglobin at 24 weeks. So 51% of the individuals in the hydro group had a positive response, i.e. one gram or more per deciliter increase in the hemoglobin, as opposed to 33% in the medium group and 7% in the placebo group. Really profoundly different. Yeah, very, very different. And The the per-protocol analysis was 1.3 grams per deciliter increase versus 0.7 versus a 0% increase at 24 weeks. They confirmed that there was high what they call hemoglobin occupancy, which is really a measure of how many of those hemoglobin molecules have the drug actually attached to it and seemingly doing its thing. There was 26% had hemoglobin associated, a drug associated with the hemoglobin in the high group and 17% in the medium group. All of the secondary markers of hemolysis were similarly improved, so it's sort of a consistent story. Um, in terms of what's going on, and they also measured the um, uh, uh, a hormone c- called um, erythropoietin, e- erythropoietin, which was the same in all three groups, which is which is important because what the authors state is that in fact, if you, you, you might be changing the ability of the hemoglobin molecule to let go of oxygen, in essence, in the tissue. And that could be a, that could be a bad effect. So if, if the oxygen is attached to the hemoglobin mo- molecule more avidly as a result of this medication, it might not let go of the oxygen where it is needed, and that could, that could have some bad effects. And the measure of that is that if, in fact, it wasn't being let go where it was needed in the bone marrow, erythropoietin would go up. And they showed that erythropoietin didn't go up. So that is sort of um, of quasi reassuring, quasi reassuring in terms of of it's it's not changing the the mechanics of or the hemoglobin dissociation curve. There was no difference in the number of uh, sickle cell crises across the different groups, but the authors state that that might in fact be be something that wouldn't be seen at 24 weeks and could potentially be seen with the analysis that's going to be done at 72 weeks. And in fact, they they
1: they offered a, a somewhat convoluted argument around that point, which was that when you increase the hemoglobin, you will increase the blood viscosity. And if you increase the blood viscosity, you might increase the rate of crises. crises. yeah. And so they were arguing that, you know, even though the crises didn't go down, perhaps it was sort of like a you know, you're having fewer crises because of the vexillator affecting the polymerization, but at the same time, you're creating more crises because you're increasing the viscosity of the blood, and and therefore the two cancel each other out. I mean, this was a very, I thought this was a bit of a stretch of an argument.
0: Very speculative. They
1: did kind of ponder about that point.
0: They also reported the um, adverse events that were not related to sickle cell disease, and they were high in all three groups, in the, high, in the high drug group, the medium drug group, and in the placebo. And I don't really understand why that was. I mean, it was really quite high in the placebo group, but, um, you know, if they, if they determined that these were, in fact, not as a result of the, of the sickle cell disease, why, why would it be the same in all three groups? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good
2: question. Uh, may, maybe just because all three groups are, are quite sick. It's a severe... No well, mess, I don't know how they up.
0: determined that, you know, they gave us a list of what those adverse mm-hmm. events were, and it's myalgias and headaches yeah. and things. Yeah. Uh, they didn't really explain how they determined, actually, that those adverse events yeah. were not associated with sickle disease, because sickle disease has protein effects, oh, because absolutely. it affects all the, and you know, essentially all the organs in Are the body. And you feel achy and have myalgias yeah, and sickle yeah. cell so disease, I didn't, for sure. quite, I didn't quite get that. Yeah, I, I was yeah fair, uh, enough. fair enough. I was skeptical, too.
2: Okay, uh, so... Based, I mean, so the reason why we wanted to to do this one was because this is obviously it's, it's a, a really severe disease, and and as far as I know, there haven't been a, a much in the way of breakthroughs for what is quite a severe condition in a long time. And based on our read of the abstract, I mean, this seems to be you know a really big effect, quite a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm struggling with why Chris, when you give us your take on this, also give us your sense for. You know, why why didn't this get more press? Is it is there something that I'm you know, they're missing in terms of the quality of their study? Or, you know, what's what do we think's going on here?
1: Hmm. I I'm gonna guess I don't I don't know because I I felt much as you did, Matthew, that this felt like a like probably a game changer. Like this is the first new compound for sickle cell disease in an ever so long time. Um, you know the drug seemed safe; it was efficacious. Um, you know it could be combined with hydroxyurea. It has a total novel mechanism of action that allows it to be combined protect, potentially synergistically with other. Treatments. I mean, this is this is a very very big deal, and and there are a lot of people with sickle cell disease. So I, I would have thought that the sickle cell advocacy groups would have been sp- like making a lot of noise about this. And and so I'm I'm curious. Did did that not when you were looking at the the press releases, you, you're kind of hinting that there was more to that story than we saw because the three that you you cited are all kind of like eh, whatever uh, groups. Sorry, Medline, Med Med. WebMD or whatever it is, but you know, yeah, w- w- like you said, what happened to the New York Times on this one? Why? No,
2: I'm, 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 I'm not trying to hint at anything more than just that. If I, if I go by again, I, you know, I could be missing things, but I, the way that I go about finding the the headlines is I go to the page for the um, the journal article and then I hit the uh, the little JavaScript app that Altmetric has created, and Altmetric. Is supposed to be picking up, you know, all the all the um, articles that, or all the news articles and tweets and you know other forms of communication that talk about a particular article, and there just there just wasn't a lot, and mm-hmm. I, I you know it just struck me as a little bit weird. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's,
0: it's funny too because around the same time, relatively recently, there, I think that there was a fair amount of press about the first. In essence, transplantation of a stem cell, where they had used molecular methods to actually change that incorrect amino acid into a correct amino and, acid, and there was a and lot they, of about and that, and they infused that back into a young a young woman, and she she and everybody's very very hopeful about that because that is a definitive cure as opposed to this, which is you know which is uh, a treatment a, a but treatment not a, a, a treatment, but that would require. Lifelong treatment, like right? But many it others, doesn't require a stem other cell transplant, which is right. Ex- so it would be a l- super expensive, a lot cheaper safer. and and safer and and you know much less much less trouble. I, if if I could, you
1: know pile in here on, on, on what I thought the paper did and did not show. I, I you know, it, obviously using hemoglobin is a very uh, sensitive endpoints and pretty unambiguous and it really ties closely with what the drug is supposed to do. So I understand that, but nonetheless, I felt so dissatisfied by what else they measured because I want to know as, as a, like a, as a doctor, right. Does this make my patient feel better?
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: And they didn't talk about quality of life
2: at I all. thought that was weird, too. Or function. Yeah, I thought that like, was
1: weird. Wouldn't you think, like, the, the point of raising your hemoglobin is to increase your energy levels and your ability to do your activities of daily living? They didn't talk about that at all. Why not? I mean, isn't that really the bottom line? I mean, it, in some sense, who cares if the hemoglobin is one gram per decimal liter higher on average? Mm. You know, don't you want to know that that translates into,
0: I feel better? And I can do more. Yeah. And I think in addition to that, why did they do the, uh, they they designed the study to follow these people up for 72 weeks. Why did they do an analysis at 24 weeks before they even finished the period of observation at 72 weeks when they could have made probably better observations, not only in terms of um, hemoglobin and anemia and the rest of that stuff. and leaving aside your point, Chris, about quality of life. But the thing that I'd want to know about is are these major, you know, occlusive events happening less often and are they having less pain? Are they having less infarcts of their kidneys and fewer strokes and all the rest of that, which may require a much longer period of of observation. But certainly um, you would, you have a chance of seeing more of those really important endpoints if you're going to report the findings at 72 weeks as opposed to 24 weeks. Yeah. Why even do this analysis at 24 weeks? Yeah,
1: especially when you look at, at their at their figure, looking at the impact on the hemoglobin uh-huh. uh, over time. Yeah, the it, it's 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 know there, our our listeners can't see it, but the the benefit of the 1500 milligram voxelator, or the 900 milligram voxelator. This is figure two, is accrued. Within the first two weeks of starting the drug, and then there is really no suggestion that you have a, a continued increase in hemoglobin over time. It's like all the benefit happens immediately. Now that's within very, two weeks, which is very interesting. So it's not like it. I mean, it decreases your your hemolysis rate, but it does it immediately, and then it achieve it seems to me to achieve a new steady state of hemolysis. Mm-hmm. But you don't continue to to gain over time. Mm-hmm. You you reach a slightly higher hemoglobin concentration, and there you stay. Now, that could all be explained by the pharmacokinetics of this drug, which reversibly bind to the oxygenated hemoglobin, which means that they can it can disassociate from the oxygenated hemoglobin. And so maybe this is all about pharmacokinetics. But if that's true, then you start to wonder, like, well, doesn't that mean there's a whole range of other questions related to the optimal use of this drug? Like 1,500 milligrams once a day, big spike, it goes down. What's the what's the half life of the drug? We never learned that. Yeah. But maybe you know what about a thousand milligrams twice a day oh. instead of fifteen hundred milligrams once a day or fifteen hundred milligrams twice a day, because the side effect profile of 1500 versus 900 was pretty similar. Mm-hmm. So maybe they can push the dose and give more doses. And if they did that, maybe they could get up to, you know, two or three milligrams of hemoglobin, and they could really make the drug sing.
2: Yeah, so I I struggled with this paper a bit, not in the sense that I I, I didn't, you know, know what they did, or, or think that they did you know, roughly the, the, an appropriate kind of design study, but I, I struggled with it partly because this is, this, is, this is difficult for me. I mean, I don't know this field at all, and, and it's, you know, it's something that I struggled to understand even the terminology for. And as I, you know, you guys know, I always, before I read the study, I write down what my prior is. And for this one, I wrote down... No idea. Nada. No idea. I guess Uh skepticism, because I'm always skeptical of new drugs and big game changers. But what the heck do I know anyway? But I am, going back to this, I am curious about the outcome. I mean, so when I looked at this outcome, my first question was is this the right outcome or is this a surrogate outcome yeah it's a surrogate yeah. and i don't yeah. know the answer to that is that is this a surrogate outcome I mean, To a outcome? certain
0: extent i mean anemia is a really important part of the symptomatology for sickle cell disease and, and can be very debilitating in itself but but the but the the hit on life expectancy is not from anemia it's really from these these red blood cells sick, uh, sickling and then clogging the arteries and then preventing the blood flow to a certain part of the brain or the kidney or you know, and that's what produces the crises. So we don't know whether in fact the the percent of sickled cells is changed in this. We, the only thing we know are these, as you said, you know, surrogate markers, and 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 yeah. that's the that's the really important thing that I want to know is is are those infarcts and those life threatening events diminished in any way? And mm-hmm. we're not given that information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what would be the yeah, consequences so it seems of pushing like this, the dose? This,
1: because like you you right. said, this drug stabilizes the oxygenated state. Does that, mm-hmm. So does that mean that oxygen is less likely to re- be released by the hemoglobin? molecule, well, which makes it mean that, that you're not delivering oxygen to the tissues
0: because it's being glued on by the voxelator molecule. Well, they're trying to convince us that the, the erythropoietin levels are, are saying the opposite. They're, right. they're saying that there's that's adequate fair. oxygen being delivered to the bone marrow. Right. But in, in fact, that's how the drug seems to work. They were concerned about that.
1: Right. So like, I don't know. I, I just feel like there, there, there's a long way to go on this before yeah. we can... I mean, yeah. I, I, in my notes, I wrote game changer, question mark. Yeah. Because at the end, yeah. I wasn't sure.
0: Yeah
2: and th- And that is so I, that's why I started to wonder, is that the reason why I didn't get as much press because maybe it's not as big a game changer as I originally thought it was when I read that. The abstract that maybe it's a really you know it's really positive sign and it's going in the right direction but it's too early to say and certainly we've seen you know things that looked really promising before turn out to not be as promising further down the line just to go back to a a point raised earlier Don you'd said why why do this analysis at 24 weeks when they were following them up for 72 weeks and I actually had the same question I don't know the answer but I did wonder you know they had these stopping rules. Hmm built into the study, and the effect is so large that you could see this would have been the kind of study that would have been stopped early for benefit. Don't you think they would have told us that? Exactly. (laughs) I don't see anything that says that, so I don't know. But the question here, so there were 200 and how many? 274, I think. 74 patients in the study for a a three-arm trial. So that's not a lot of people in your study. And yet you, you only need 274, presumably because you had such large effects. Now, the question is, what was the study power... What kind of difference was the study powered to detect?
0: <laughs> Did they tell us that? that I don't remember que- them telling us that.
2: They didn't. They didn't tell us that. That is why you didn't report yeah. it. There is no... Power calculation. There is no sample size justification here. And I it just made me really curious. I mean, obviously... I say that, I mean, they they published their protocol, so I'm sure it's in there. And I didn't go and, and read it. But, you know, it did strike me as um, strange not to see that in there and that the journal didn't ask for hmm. it. it. seemed I weird. I
1: am surprised that the New England Journal would not spot that. That's a pretty, yeah. pretty obvious one.
2: Unless I just missed it. But then we all missed it. And you didn't well, say I didn't anything. I it either. The, I just looked the, again. Yeah. So uh, one other thing, which is that I and I... Never used to do this, but I have to say uh since starting this podcast with you guys, it has become now standard practice for me to first, as you did, Don go and look at the author's uh conflicts of interest and their the funding mm-hmm. and as soon as I see industry, you know as the term you used was a yellow flag, <laughs> and i I think that was a, that was exactly the right term it's not that it's not a red flag right. But it's definitely a, hmm, Hmm. uh, from everything that we know, from everything that we know, whether intentionally or even unintentionally, you can be influenced by funding in particular when it's industry funding, when there's a product to be sold. And that just sort of dampens my enthusiasm just a little bit. Now, this is a huge effect. So if it it pans out, that's, you know, that uh, I'm not saying here that I don't believe anything is going on. But again, it's just one more level of why I want to see more data.
0: Mm-hmm. The other thing that I thought was curious was uh, sort of along the lines of what you were saying, Matt, about uh, how the, um, uh, the the number of people in each group was relatively small. But the study accrued the um, subjects across 60 institutions in 12 countries. It seems to me... That yep. seems excessive, uh, you know. G- given given the the prevalence of this disease in you know in, in urban African American populations in United States and, and other places, it seems to me that you could probably have do, done a, a, accrued that number of individuals in one or two sites, mm-hmm. you know, in an urban in an urban uh, medical practice or in an urban setting. I don't know why they had to. To, to spread 60, it so wide. Yeah, spread it so wide. So like yeah. each, in, each institution, you know, is enrolling nine or ten, in, 10, 10, 10 subjects. It just didn't make sense yeah, to me. Yeah,
2: I, I, I agree. We, I, I will have to say that we have reviewed several studies before that have been like that, but um, I well, agree with you. Well,
0: that's for right. very sort of rare diseases. This is not such a rare disease, especially in the, Ameri- Afri- yep. in the, Ameri- uh, uh, the African-American population. Yep.
2: Yep. All right. Any, any last points before I take the last uh-huh. word? No, Chris? go ahead. Go ahead. Chris? Yeah. What? What is a phase one half trial?
1: <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> they, <laughs> never they heard of that before. To,
2: what is that? They were? I have no idea. I they referred to their phase earlier. One, two.
1: A phase one two trial?
2: Oh, is that what it is?
1: I think that might. It's not a half. It's a one two.
2: Oh, that would make so much more sense. Well, yeah, there you go. I'm I showing reckon, off my ignorance. <laughs> I reckon
1: it's a phase one, two trial. And and, in, and what they, I don't know what they're referring to, but they, sometimes they, they have adaptive designs where you have a phase one trial that goes straight into a phase two trial without becoming a new cohort.
2: Okay. So it does, it says in a phase one slash two, which I read as one half.
1: <laughs> no, yep. I think it's a one, two trial.
2: <laughs> oh, good. Uh, okay. I didn't know that was such a thing. It's kind of the knockout punch um, of
1: clinical development.
2: So 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 two other things. One is that this had the shortest discussion section I have ever read. And as you guys know, I don't like discussion sections, so I was thrilled. I didn't count how long it was, but if you look at it, this was a really short discussion section. Five paragraphs. And because of that, it contained no limitation section. <laughs> which by the way, which by the way, I said about the last one, the one that we did last week or two weeks ago. Which I, I still stand by the statement. That was the one when you were they, in Germany. Yeah, that was back a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Back when you were in France,
1: <laughs> were you? On, were you in France, Chris? <laughs> well, six weeks ago, really?
2: <laughs> that one. It, it's not that it had no limitations; it's that their limitations were almost entire about generalizability, which I don't like in limitation sections. So I misspoke on that one. But um, anyway, let's move on. Okay, so in uh, in our second segment, we want to talk about an article that was published in Nature Human Behavior. An article. It was a. It was a more of a commentary. It was called What Science Looks Like, and it was a story about their first two registered reports. And this is something that we have talked about in a number of different episodes on this podcast, and I have expressed as an idea that I'm quite interested in. Yeah, take, in. It, take us back
1: to the beginning here.
2: Oh, I'll, I'll take you way back, all the way. Way all back, right. way back. So, okay, Shane. So
1: time travel noise.
2: Excellent, excellent. So... Um, <laughs> So we've talked a lot about the, the replication crisis that's been going on, particularly in the, the psychological sciences, and um, but it certainly applies to us in, in EPI. And you have these studies, these sort of big-name studies that now have been replicated and have failed to replicate, and so trying to figure out what to do about this. And one of the solutions that was proposed is the idea of registered reports. Now, registered reports builds on the idea of uh, pre-registration, pre-registration meaning if I do a study, if I'm going to do a study, then I should you know, have in a registry somewhere my protocol for what I'm going to do, including my analysis plan for how I'm going to analyze the data so that I don't then get into the situation where I can just change the analysis uh, until I get the results that I want. And this is this is I, I don't know if I would say it's taken off, but it's become much more of a thing in the, the psychological sciences. Of course, we have this already in the in the world of, of uh, clinical trials for epi, not so much for observational studies, but even in clinical trials, I mean it, it's not like the clinical trial registers require you to pre-register your analysis plan. So you know, it's not it's not entirely clear, although with a clinical trial, the analysis plan is usually quite simple, so probably not a big thing anyway. Registered Reports takes this a step forward and says, what if journals actually have people write up their methods and their question and submit it to the journal before they ever do the study? And then the journal can look at the description of the problem that they're trying to solve and the methods that they're going to use to solve it. And decide whether or not that if the authors can do what they say they're going to do, whether or not they will publish it. And if they agree to publish it, then if the authors do what they said they were going to do, they publish it whether or not it shows anything interesting. In other words, it could be a null finding. And that is what this journal did. And they have now had their first two papers published which were registered reports, so two papers that the journal agreed ahead of time were interesting questions and the methodology could answer the question, but the journal deciding, I think, through peer review, though. And these two, first two published registered reports, the first one found, one found a null effect and one found a counterintuitive effect, meaning it it sort of disproved what they thought they were going to find kind of study. So, their take on this is this is essentially this is a success, right? right? We are getting right. null findings published even if uh, because we think the question is interesting, not because we think the result is interesting. And that it gives more of an opportunity to decide that we're going to publish something before we actually know what the result is. So as you guys know, I, I'm really interested in this idea. I don't know that I'm totally signed on to it, but I think it's quite interesting. But I do wonder, you know, where this is all heading, right? Is this a flavor of the month thing that people are going to kind of get tired of? Is this going to become something that only, you know, niche journals do? And is it sustainable? I mean, this obviously requires some upfront work that people have to do in order to get their question accepted.
1: Right. But, But you made the point last time when we discussed the concept that actually the amount of reviewer work is not that much different, right? Because yeah. if you agree on all the nitty gritty in terms of the protocol and the analysis plan up front, then really all you're doing is looking at the results of that executed analysis plan.
2: I, I I do agree with that, yep. Yep, I suppose it requires a little bit of authors upfront time. So it's not that I don't think that it will require more time of authors, it requires more time up front as opposed to doing it when doing the writing and the conceptualizing and the selling of your idea you know, selling in quotes before you've, you've done the study. And I, you know, I'm just, I, I wonder whether, you know, the, again, is this a huge leap forward or is this a baby step? I'm not, I, I I'm not sure yet. I, what do you guys think? Well, let's go
1: back to the future. So I'm going to go, I'm going to take us back to the future. Hold on a second. Here
2: okay. We go. <laughs> okay. All right. What, wait, before you, before you say anything, Don?
0: Yeah. <laughs> do I, do I have a similar soundtrack? No.
2: No 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 it's not that it's that um for <laughs> while I was while I was explaining while I was explaining that whole thing yeah. I thought that my computer had frozen cuz you did not move <laughs> <laughs> I just took a little I nap s- Matt. I stunned him
0: I took a little <laughs> nap <laughs> I of okay. my, my mind. sorry
2: Chris, go ahead. <laughs> Chris, go ahead. Nick, mute
0: the mic um, so you don't hear my
1: snoring. Uh, I don't know. I thought that the, these the, the title of that editorial was was a was a little bit self satisfied. Like what science looks like. Like hey guys, yeah. pay attention to us. This is the real yeah. deal. But on on one level, I was like, you know, they're right. This is a better way to do it. it. It, you know, it takes away all those perverse incentives around publication bias and like needing to p-hack your way into, into fame. So, I, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was right. And the fact that the, these two papers came back, one is a null finding, one is a, is like the opposite of what they thought their hypothesis was going to, you know, their hypothesis was, was, it was, poetically ironic. Mm. And it just like, it totally fit the narrative of like, we have a publication bias crisis in, in, in scientific, uh, in science. And we believe this is, is a big problem and that, you know, null findings are being systematically excluded and that counterintuitive findings are being ignored uh, in many cases because they don't like you know, they conflict with the, the principal investigator's preconceived hypotheses and therefore damages their ego. You know, if you believe that that was true, this is a perfect demonstration of that fear. Realized, and, and the solution also demonstrated. I, I, I actually really liked it. I thought that they they had uh, some bragging rights on this one. I think it has the staying power of a hothouse orchid. That's, <laughs> that, you have to explain
0: that one, yeah. because I'm not sure about those hothouse orchids. <laughs>
1: Is this a metaphor?
0: I don't, I don't don't think that this is going to, I don't think this is going to play out. I think that this is a niche effort, though I agree with it, though I think it's elegant, though I think it's, it's something that uh, if, if applied widely, it could be a good idea, but I just don't see it happening. And I, I, and I can, because I, I think that the, the industry doesn't work this way. And I think that it, it's gotten to the point where it's almost impossible not to get a paper published regardless of the quality of the paper. And I think that if people submit their idea with all everything spelled out and all the rigor implied to one or two journals and they get rejected, they'll go to the next tier journal and they will get it accepted. Yeah. And, you know, the only way that this can be successful is if it is universally adopted. And I just don't see that happening.
2: Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe, and I, I see what I, I, take your point but you know the other way it could work is if if certain journals decided to adopt this and those became seen as the prestigious journals because of that. People would say, you know, if, if, if I'm looking at your, you know, your packet for promotion and I see you have actually published science that we have a bit more faith in because it went to a journal and was accepted as a registered report, and I value that more, but you know, that has the does, potential to influence the
0: industry. Doesn't that system already exist? I mean, there are a handful of really
2: prestigious journals which
0: have high impact and that uh, well, the, but, the,
2: but that doesn't necessarily make them good science
0: no 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 absolutely not but but I think that there are people that regard the science that's published in those journals as being of a higher quality even though it may not be true and that is a I think that that is taken into the, to, to consideration when people are looking at whether the finding of that particular study is true or not true or reproducible or not reproducible, and I think that it hasn't made a, a fundamental difference. You know, I think that you can put together a CV with a lot of second-tier journals if you're very, very productive and still accomplish much of your goals, or, you know, you can make an argument for a particular change in our understanding of a disease process By a whole lot of second-tier journal findings.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I still think there is a an outside chance. I I may not be the 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 most likely scenario that 50 years from now we we look back and say, "Hey, you remember when we used to just uh, publish anything, write up (laughs) articles, and 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 submit them to journals, and and they would accept them no matter what we did." And you know now we have to actually do things the right way and we register them ahead of time. And we, you know i I'm not saying that's the right thing. but I could you know it's not impossible to me that, given some time that we decide that, you know, this whole industry is going in a direction yeah, we don't like, and we change it slowly. I, I my question is, how would we know if this was working? What would be the measure that we would say this actually improved science? Would it be that, we would get a bunch of studies that replicated? Would it be that we got a bunch of studies that improved public health? I mean, what would it what would that look like? I don't I don't have the answer to that, but I, I think we gotta figure that out if we're gonna convince people to actually use this. I mean,
1: couldn't couldn't you approach this in, in much the same way that the meta-analysis people do, like using funnel blots to see if like studies that went through pre-registration like this, registered reports have you know, systematically different effect sizes or skewed effect size distributions l- like?
2: Oh, you could. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what that would look like, but I suppose you could also look at, you know, if you looked at, you know, 10 years from now, you looked at meta-analyses of questions that there were some pre-registered studies and there were no other ones where there were none. And you looked to see whether the publication bias measured by the funnel plot disappeared when there were registered reports on a particular topic, I suppose that would be some evidence to suggest it's actually working. Yeah. That's an interesting idea.
0: You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not convinced. You know, I think that there's a lot of sort of hand-wringing about the peer review process right now. And everybody thinks that it's the best we have, but it's still woefully inadequate. Yeah. And that there are a lot of public, there are a lot of studies that get published in good journals that have gone through the peer review process that we have torn apart here, even, Uh, you know, high tier, high tier journals. So I don't understand why we would therefore expect that the same peer review process is going to vet the rigor of the, of the research that is anticipated and spelled out in, in great detail ahead of time as being the gold standard and being acceptable.
2: No, I I I hear you on that one, Don. I don't think this is going to solve every problem. And one thing it's not going to solve is, you know, there will still be some poorly designed studies that that get through. Though I think it would it would it would improve things in the sense that it would, you know, you would have you'd be able to have a commitment to, you know, only accepting things that at least as far as they were described, you thought could legitimately answer the question. Now, all I have at the end of the process is: I either have they did, you know, they did what they did, and it's flawed, or it's it's fundamentally flawed, or it's you know I'm willing to accept it. But there's nothing they can do about it most of the time after the fact. There's some you know analyses you can change and things like that, but often you can't fix it. Whereas this, I at least have the ability to to give the input beforehand. Mm-hmm. But you're right; I don't think it would solve all the problems, but it would do is 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 lead to the commitment to publish. That result, regardless of whether or not we like the finding, right?
1: We know that a certain fraction of these of papers have been pre vetted, and the, the there will be no publication
0: bias on this article.
1: Couldn't you that, say well, that we
0: know? Couldn't you say though that as far as as far as NIH funded research, that we're essentially going through that process, study section. Can be very very rigorous, and you know all of us have have had the experience where we've submitted a, 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 a you know a protocol for approval and funding from the NIH, and they basically just blow us out of the water, or they they make us go through several iterations of changing the methodologies. Isn't that, isn't that somewhat similar? you know similar processes to what's being suggested here
2: yeah i i do think there is there are some similarities and i think that's part of the reason why probably you know this is taking off more in in the psychological sciences than with you know with epi where the the procedures for getting funding and the size of the studies and the complexity in some cases differ I, that's not totally true universally so so yeah to a certain extent i i would agree with that but yet you know we certainly see lots of studies that you know, we don't think are necessarily up to the rigor that they should be. But more to the point, Don, I don't think that those uh, review sections necessarily are signing off on your final analysis plan. And I think that was a lot of the issue that these, uh, this approach was meant to, to deal with in the, in the psychological sciences. It was experimental, too, but, but a lot more around the analysis. All right, well, so then answer this question then. Would you, would you take the bet— that there will be no I'm not going to say any journal but but sort of, you know, first second or, you know, tiered journal within, you know, sort of the medical fields that switch to a model of registered reports within the next 3 years. So, what's
0: the bet? It's that they will or they won't.
2: That at least one that we will have at least one journal in the in our world that will go this route within the next 3 years. 3 years? Yeah. How much? Uh 20 bucks. I'll take it. All right. So what are you what are you betting so, Which I'm, way? so I'm
0: betting that there will be no journal yep. in the medical realm yep. or the public health realm that yep. will take this on in the next 3 years.
2: Yep. You would take the bet? I'm
0: wow. taking this bet. I'm going to I'm going right. to bet the I'm going to bet the other
1: way and, and I'm You have gonna, to have a counterparty. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to bet 20 bucks that, that an Epi journal does do this and if I could put my my, my nickel on top of the 20 bucks mm-hmm. that it would it would be the BMJ. That would go for this.
0: And yeah. you're saying you're saying that they will accept n- no other publication but these?
1: Mm, Are we saying no. that or
0: that they will adopt this model? Adopt this model for all publications in the in the journal. Maybe all uh, randomized controlled trials. Yeah, I could. Well, let's be specific.
1: Here. I'm rather <laughs> say that they will adopt this for all RCTs. But I'm I'm I recognize that I'm I'm being very optimistic here. All because right. I think I'm gonna lose twenty twenty dollars and five cents All right, here. So so, <laughs> if, All right, so we will in be interested in this
0: adopt this. You I'm owe trying me twenty to quell bucks. Our,
1: our our natural cynicism here.
0: So Matt, Excellent. are you in, in on this? You want some action?
2: I want some of this action, yeah. But I'm not, I don't I would not take the bet if it's if it's within three years, it would be a journal that only goes this route. I, I think it would have to be that uh, the the journal, you know, opens up to this route. Mm-hmm. No, it's not, you not want taking to that pen. nickel
0: on any journal in particular, <laughs> you, you got to have confidence in your convictions. MJFE. Yes.
2: It's going to be the uh, International Journal of Registered Reports for Epidemiology. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on. Can, uh, on. can, I, can move on. I go
1: first in this one?
2: You because can. Because mine,
1: mine, mine goes right off of this topic.
2: It's uh, okay. okay. super short. Right. So it's apparently actually short. No, no introduction needed. Chris, no take it away. No introduction
1: needed. So, are, are any of you guys familiar with the scientist John McCool? Mick <laughs> Cool? This is a real no, person. No,
2: I no, don't want that no, name.
1: Okay, that's good It's like it's up there with McLovin. <laughs> If you ever see super bad, yes it's an excellent movie. But inappropriate. So we, we should edit it out. Because I can't be endorsed on the radio. Anyway, it's an excellent movie. I use I use the McLovin driving license in a lot of my lectures.
2: Oh, what's the driving license?
1: Well he's you know, he, he has a fake driver's license to show that he's 21 and that's how he gets oh, himself right. into in, in you know in with the cops. Yep. <laughs> Anyway, so John McCool is a, is, a, is a science reporter who is really irritated by predatory journals. And I think he's got a particular bee in his bonnet against a group called the Medcrave group. I kid you not. Medcrave. Mm. Like, I needed some science. <laughs> and he had really pissed them off earlier because they had, like, solicited him to write some stupid article in a journal that, like, you know, he's not a doctor. And he's not a scientist; he's a scientist science writer. And so, so he said, "The Crave Group is a journal. They're a predatory journal. There's it's a group a of journal. journals, but they're basically predatory journals." Okay. And right. so, but but this had not really dissuaded them because, despite him like trying to you know, troll them, they kept trolling Come him back, back. Right. with stupid spam emails. Right. And so he finally got annoyed. He got in, in asked to, to submit an article to the Journal of Urology and Nephrology Open Access, oh. which is not one that I have worked with in the past. Now he's Not a nephrologist, nor a urologist, nor even a doctor. So he was irritated by this. So he decided to accept their offer. And he wrote an article over the weekend called... Are you guys Seinfeld fans? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The article called Uromycetitis Poisoning... (laughs) <laughs> results in lower urinary tract infection and acute renal failure, a case report by physicians Martin von Nostrand, J. Reimenschneider, and Leonard Nicodemo, all of whom are characters from Seinfeld.
2: <laughs> Wait, th- those are all Seinfeld's characters? Those are all Seinfeld characters. Now, uh, um, what about, what about uh, what is it, Art Vandelay. <laughs> Uh, he might be in here.
1: Um, and what, about, what about
0: George Costanza?
1: Oh, he's he, he's in here too. So he wrote this whole case report about the episode called The Parking Garage in Seinfeld where oh, no. Jerry Seinfeld needs to go to the bathroom because he can't find his car while he's in the parking garage right. and so he decides to pee against a wall right. and is arrested <laughs> and he tries to get off by saying he has this disease called heuromycetitis that, that that he has a license from the gov- the state of New York <laughs> to pee wherever he wants but he left the license at home and they don't buy it and they, they arrest him anyway and the whole thing is like this big farce right yeah. and so he writes up exactly this, the plot of the episode, episode. and <laughs> <It's so laughs> <innocent>. submitted it <laughs> and brilliant. drum roll Please. It gets accepted. It was accepted. <laughs> it was accepted. Okay. Almost immediately. Oh my God. Within an hour, they wrote back saying, We think this is highly appropriate for our journal. And three days later, after a rigorous peer review, it was accepted <laughs> with some minor formatting changes and requested he include the lab values in the ER, <laughs> which he made up. <laughs>
2: And that then is the, so good. And
1: the, the footnotes, of course, is you know he lists like footnote number one, Ryman Schneider J, Van Nostrum N, Costanza G L, that's <laughs> in the Journal of the Journal of Advanced Urology, oh, uh, and he fun. goes on to list a whole bunch of other people who were obvious Seinfeld uh, folks. It was just it was it was it was beautiful. Oh God, I want beautiful. to see that. Yeah. So here's here's the actual article. I brought it in. If you want a copy of it, oh I do. It's pretty. It's pretty funny. Oh that is it's pretty funny. So well done, John McCool. Well done, McLovin.
2: <laughs> okay, so, so Chris, I, I'm going to follow on and I'm going to make mine really quick because mine followed the exact, same, the exact same pattern, exact same logic. So we apparently were thinking of the same thing. Mine was uh, back from the uh, 20, uh, end of 2018. You know, Retraction Watch has their um, list of, of biggest offenders of the year. Oh yeah, this so, is where
1: I found this. Was on Retraction Watch.
2: Oh, that's so interesting. So this was this. It must have been the same 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 idea. And they were um, one of their big uh, ones from 2018. Number six was a paper that uh, same idea that the author wrote up. Uh, got a, a put an article together. Didn't actually write it. He used uh, SciGen, You know what Sygen is? Uh huh. This it like is a bot. Uh, it's a paper writing algorithm created by MIT oh, God. that will just <laughs> re- write the paper for you. Random?
0: Just sort of flipping random sub- subjects? And- no, I think it actually
2: writes a paper for you. I mean, I haven't I haven't done it, but uh, and uh, and so he wrote up this paper, and submitted it to Drug Designing and Intellectual Properties International Journal. And in the title of the paper was Wanyan refinement of RPCS. So maybe it does just make stuff up. I have no idea. But what he did, Wanyan.
1: <laughs> it's a Wanyan? <laughs> what
0: is what is a Wanyan?
1: It's like a Funyan. I it's
2: like
0: a Funyan. It comes in a little like plastic bag. You, you buy it at the,
1: at the, the at the bodega.
2: Okay, so now I'm googling it to make sure it's not a dirty word. <laughs> <laughs> oh. A word, a word found only in the phrases with a wanyon, in the wanted. <laughs> what was that? Why I missed it. <laughs> Matt's laughing well, I now. I can't hear Matt. Matt's Matt laughing. He's a paroxysm and unable to speak right now. <laughs> There's the silent uh, Matt
0: laugh.
1: A word. <laughs> a word. <laughs> well, our, our, our listeners are going to just have to take it on faith right. that it's super funny
2: <laughs> No, it's not funny It's just funny that I had to look it up So, what so does is it mean wa-
0: anything? What is a wanyon?
2: A word found only in the phrases with a wanyon in the wanton And wantons on you generally interpreted, generally interpreted to note some kind of imprecation What does that mean? I don't know.
1: This sounds like Lewis Carroll.
2: <laughs> with a vengeance or a word of uncertain signification used only in phrases with a wanyan, apparently equivalent to with a vengeance. So what
0: does a wanyan uh, mean?
2: <laughs> I, a don't know. I, think. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Something to do with Skeletor. So Google he, anyway, doesn't know all. <laughs> Google doesn't know all. So he wrote this up and he submitted it with the co-authors. Satoshi Nakamoto, who is oh, the Bitcoin uh, inventor, guy, the inventor of Bitcoin, yeah, and uh, Kim Kardashian.
1: <laughs> Excellent.
2: <laughs> and he submitted it, and of She's course, a better
1: scientist than us.
2: As you would expect, they accepted it, but that in and of itself, I don't find at all interesting or surprising because that happens all the time. But what I did like was that they interviewed the guy who wrote the paper or had the paper written. Uh, Retraction Watch did And they said "Uh, Our guest is Our guest is Few scientists have had The opportunity to work With Kim Kardashian How did you end up collaborating And he says I've always thought That Kim's scientific talents Were a bit underappreciated So I wanted to give her The opportunity to show The unknown side of her It was a very smooth And productive collaboration Obviously Kim's very busy Being a celebrity and all So we never actually Managed to meet in person But she's been talking to me Through her Instagram (laughs) posts And needless to say The science presented (laughs) In the paper Would have never reached Such high quality Without her input (laughs) (laughs)
1: Through her Instagram posts I love it Uh That's great
2: Yeah So same idea But Well That is the end of our program If you got any feedback On this or any other episode Or you want to suggest A topic for us to take on You can tweet us At X, Or you can tweet me At at ProfMattFox Or Chris At ID.Gill Or Don At Theo one Or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange Website at www.POPHealthyX.org We want to thank Leslie Talali And Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for everything that he does editing this thing Yay, Nick! for the hours that he spends. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode.